standing here looking at me. Your heart, 
once again Won't you take me back again I'll be waiting here to then On the outside looking in Won't you take me back again I'll be waiting here to then On the outside looking in On the outside looking in This is Sabrina Marie, host of the Building Abundant Success Series. We just got finished listening to the beautiful sounds of iconic, legendary singer, little Anthony Gordine of the Imperials. He sings, hurts so bad, and I'm on the outside looking in. Both of those songs were written by the late songwriter, Tony Randazzo. We talk about not only little Anthony's music, his trip through history. As it's Black History Month, we talk about his legendary career, lessons learned from his elders, and his meetings with the great Sarah Vaughan and touring with Ruth Brown, meeting up and writing songs with Sam Cooke, Muhammad Ali, when he was Cassius Clay, and much, much more. This awesome interview starts right now. I heard that name before. Yeah, Teddy Randazzo. Grandazzo. Yeah. Grandazzo. I've heard that name. Yeah, because he's one of the, he, he's in the song, Songwriters Hall of Fame. And he wrote, the, the Outside Looking In, Going Out of My Head, Hurt So Bad, Take Me Back, uh, little, Go Away Little Girl for Steve Lawrence, Sinatra's Tune. He's, he's one of the great prolific writers of our time. Well, I knew him. When he wasn't, we were both kids. Well, he was, he's five years older than me. Because to me, he was a grown man. I like 15, he like 21, six years. Yeah, he was six years older than me. He would have been 87 years. And he lived. And he, I, and all these little, when you asked me that question, it, 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 I, if there was one way to answer it, it'd be easy. It isn't. Because there's so many people who are responsible for anybody. There's nobody becomes who they are by themselves. They just don't. So right. he's part of that clique, that movie, to the DuPonts, to this, to that, to the beans, to the bottom. And there you go. And then that, that's why that's why I wrote the anthology album I didn't write it, but put it together with Mike Miller. Uh-huh. Uh, because he heard me talking like this. And I was rambling, he said, you know, what if you narrated it and told those stories about how songs came about? So we did. That's beautiful. Yeah, and then I found out. Stories, yeah. Yeah, and all of a sudden, I'm 81, I've been in this a long time. And I was, 
I wanted to do a PBS special in in L.A. I just got back early this morning. I took a red eye out last night. And I was there with some wonderful people. Uh, 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 what's the name of the child? So I'm talking about... Beavers is her last name. But anyway, Howard Hewitt was there. Great singer from Shalimar. Uh-huh. Uh, Darlene. Yeah. Oh, um, I love Darlene. I love Darlene. Yeah, and then, um, um, who else? A bunch of people. <laughs> and it was a PBS thing we did to celebrate Duke Ellington. Wow. So we were singing jazz, because most of us have a, we cut our teeth on that, like I was telling you with my dad. So all of us that they chose were people that they knew could, they could go in that element and, and very comfortably. Uh-huh. Even though we're R&B, rock and roll, people don't realize, you, you do a lot of things. And so that's what it was. And we, and then we all, you know, we did this thing. So I, it, it's going to be shown on PBS. I'm not going to show when, but it was a big production. We had an 18-piece orchestra. Wow. Uh, and, and it was part of the cast that survived the Basie band, Stan Kenton's band. Um, and some, it, I mean, it's amazing that, the drummer, I forget his first name, is called Jones. He was the guy on the greatest record for the name. It was done by Don Basie called uh, uh, April and Paris. He was really kind of very young, but this was one of the great tunes of its time, the big band. And, and he was said, one more time. And then Sinatra did it with him, and it became even bigger. And so I met that drummer. Now, you know, for me, it's like a kid in a candy store. Yes. What? You know, he had to be like, I mean, so he had to be like 94. And he was playing them drums like he was 24. <laughs> I'm saying, whoa. Well, anyway, to make a long story longer, I was talking about this album. We, we using all the platforms today because the music business entirely changed. And we used all the, the, the social media platforms and get, get, get it heard. And one thing led to another, and another gentleman, who was a, his name is last name is Sylvester, he was associated with the Grammy people, and he said, well, man, I heard that tune you did, New York State of Mind, the Billy Joel too. Oh, my goodness. They need to hear this. Well, no, I mean, nobody's thinking about nothing. We didn't even tell us anything. He took it, and because and, he's in the committee, they, he let them hear the album because they were, you know, getting ready to make their move on the people that they were going to present stuff to or whatever. And the album, they said, well, it's not new music because we really can't do that. We can't put it in any particular category because it's not new music. But there's one song on there that's just blowing everybody's mind. That song is New York State of Mind. Well, they, yes, the day after I got there for the PBS special, I got a call. I just been nominated for uh, a Grammy. Wow! Congratulations! Can you imagine that? Yeah. You think you didn't get it all, or you think you've come to the point in your career? Okay, we, I did all that. I did stuff, you know, and I'm very proud of my work. Yeah, oh my goodness, I was stunned. What? Are you kidding me? It just isn't done. It just isn't done. And then when. You know, I just I like to do the interview and be the interview that people get an idea of who you really are, what, what you really, what you're doing. Because I think it, I think it could inspire 
young up-and-coming artists, and for that matter, anybody. Yes, that, that, I'm just a crappy-head kid out of Brooklyn. But I never, I came out of a family so rich in their tradition and what they believed they were. I never felt like I was a victim of anything. So I always had that attitude. And now I see the fruits of that now. And I'm going, oh, my Lord. I'm so humbled by that. Because it just doesn't happen. It just happened to me. Yes. And you're still, and you're still kicking. And you get a Grammy. Yeah. I mean, life is amazing. I mean, I... I was inducted into the Rock or Hall of Fame, and that was super wonderful. But I didn't do this with some major company behind me. It goes, you know what this shows me? The power of the social media. When things go viral. Yeah. I can pay for You couldn't even, you, I wouldn't have had the budget to pay for that, which we call social media. It's really free advertisement. Yes, indeed. And the people spoke. Because I just got a call from the distributor guy says, we can't even cover the orders for that song. So here's the guy that takes the song, and the people there knew there was something about it. I was singing a Billy Joel tune that he wrote, and I know Billy very well for years. And I, I sang it because I'm a New Yorker. I understood those lyrics, and I am a believer. I'm a young lyric. You, actually, I remember you asking me in an interview, about how you, how do you perceive that or, or your lyric or whatever. I am from the old school. We, when we were taught to interpret what the writer was trying to say, as opposed to gay music, it's just bells, whistles, and gongs. Basically, I mean, it's how fantastic your production is. Rather than the artist being the lead, uh, uh, the lead cat and 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 interpreting that song it's different today. That doesn't make it bad or good. It's just different today. For me to to have young people who are basically in the in the academy to say this older dude what you know I didn't do it because I thought that that would happen. I did what God has given me the gift. When I told you earlier, it's not natural. It's supernatural. Right. It's true. Yeah. Uh, my purpose in life, I'm one of these people actually know what my purpose in life is. My days on this earth is, is numbered. I mean, I'm in the twilight of my years. Now, i got to be honest with you, dear. I'm having the greatest time of my life now. One day at a time. Oh. So, so instead of everyone, uh, you're, you're, you're kind of relieving the, the I, I always invert numbers. I, I tease my grandpeople. Eighteen. <laughs> yeah, you know. You're young. <laughs> I somebody asked me, I told him, I said, listen, I'm 81 years old, but this is there's a 31-year-old guy living in me, so please don't tell him he's 81. It would upset him. <laughs> <laughs> That's you. We yeah. really get mad. Yes. Yeah. He knew he was 81. And, no. um... You appeared in movies, didn't you, in the 50s, where in the dark? No, I never did. No, no, I didn't. I guess a lot of people didn't. No, I never, but though I tell you some people don't know, but I'm an actor. I have been in movies. I was a character actor. I've done, I've done the Jeffersons on TV. I have done uh, Tinsley Confidential with Raymond Burr. I have done so much. 
I was in a movie with, with Henry Fonda, Mr. Fonda, um, Billy D. Williams called Contact 303 that was put on the shelf because in those days there was a lot of political crap going on in, in, in Hollywood and they didn't want to release it and in the Paramount, but then that was Chad Everett and was in that, it was just, oh, it was about the, uh, it was about Tuskegee Airmen. It was the first one made. It was about the Tuskegee Airmen, the first black, um, uh, squadrons that they put together in World War II that they say, well, black can't fly a plane. Yes, sure. That they, they went out there and flew them plane like they was the Harlem Globetrotters. That's them German pilots are dead that they can speak to you how good they were. They had the most shot down, the most kills in all the history of their, their guys. Right. So they really were the first top, top gun, you know. History, one of the things that I try to do, I personally, there's enough, I've always been this attitude. It's easy to find the worst in people, but it does take a lot of work to find the best in life, period. So I'd rather talk about what is being accomplished by young, especially young black folks. I'm always focused on that. I'm never focused on the victim part because I don't have that in me to do it. I'm not who I am. That's who I am. And the last time I looked in the mirror, I was black. I'm changing. <laughs> so I just get turned on by young people. I, I'm turned on by Snoop Dogg, what he did, how he learned how to be a businessman and how to parlay what he's doing. We didn't have that when we were young. I didn't get paid like they get paid today. But I'm not bitter about that. In fact, I like to talk about it. I, I like to show and teach, and if you want to listen to me, after 65 years on this earth, I think I got some things I can say that might be beneficial to you. For sure. Because I was once told, if you want to get through a minefield, field, what I call life, a minefield of life, the reason how you do it is watch somebody who got across it, and then you walk in their footsteps. That's how you get there. Yeah. Yes. Am I going to the I'm sorry. No, I'm sorry. Oh, that's okay. I, I just, you, you're, you're saying a lot of wisdom. But what was the first um, exposure in media that you had as an artist? Well, well you see, my, well, my first really, that's an interesting question. Uh, uh, when was that? Oh, uh, when was it? The first TV show that I ever was exposed to, oh, man, I think it was a, I don't, you know, actually, they are, I'm not, I don't remember, because I did so much of it. I know that I was actually, it's, okay, there was a show called, oh, gosh, a crazy thing years ago. We used to be in, on, in, on national, uh, national radio and TV those days on one of the networks. I left the ABC, CBS, or one of them. Called, called your hit parade, and 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 it was a guy called Snooky Lanson or something. Well, they when we had tears of my pillow out, everything was happening because it broke. You know, everybody wanted to get you once you're on their show, whatever. Even the clock came a little bit later, but they said we want you to be the they, they, the the hit parade would sing hit records of all the artists. They were just singing. But Mr. Goldman said, 
these guys, this young man is different. I'd like to have him on this show. Well, this this show was all white. I mean, it was segregation. I was they, they just it was national. You just didn't do that then. But for somehow, Mr. Golden pulled it off. We were the first black group to play uh, television nationally. That means in the South and every other way. It, it was with Jim Crow and everybody else. There was. There we were. We were the first. I can talk about this all day, like all the first things that we did. We didn't think anything of it as kids. We're kids out of Brooklyn. What do we know? But we were the first to have a national exposure. So that's hopefully that answers your question. Then came Dick Clark. Um, that became good friends with him over the years. And then, um, and there were others. And then the, we were the first. I don't think we're the first black group. I think the Kinnears were and quite a few other people. The Mills Brothers were on Ed Sullivan. But we were the first rock and roll R&B singers on Ed Sullivan. Not once, but three times. From there came wow. Motown and you saw the Temptations and all that. We were first. You can Google that and see that actual show is black and white. That's how far back it goes. Well, in the in the past, it used to be the television and radio, radio disc jockeys who would bring yeah, they were the powerhouses. They were the guys. Yeah. So who are some of the people you remember? Oh, and radio from Daco, Doctor Jive, Butterball. Oh my goodness. Uh. Oh shoot. You got what about the Gita? What about the Gita? Well, Gita, you had a Gita case. I knew Jerry Blavitt. That guy was on the phone with him last week. We've been friends all the You know where I met him? You know where I met Jerry? He wasn't the Gita yet. He used to work for Sammy Davis. Oh, wow. And Sammy Davis married a young lady who was known as Alta Dees. Okay. Alta Dees, her real name is Joni Gore. She's from Brooklyn, from Fort Bing. We went to school. Her mother and my mother were best friends. That's how I met Sammy Davis. That's where Jerry used to work. Jerry was in public PR, whatever he was doing. And then he eventually became in the radio and he became the Gita. Yeah. Anthony, really yeah. yeah, you talk to Anthony and he said, he'll tell you. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, Philadelphia, New York. I mean, you had Jocko Henderson and... and Jocko uh, Henderson. And he mm-hmm. started in New York. Then he went to Philly. The WD... WD um, oh, man. My, 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 I got, my mind's got to catch up to my mouth. I'm sorry. Georgie Woods. Yeah. All the cats I knew. And this is like 1958. How did was High back then? came later. I mean, he was he was just beginning. He was riding their coattails. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. But Alan Free, in fact, Alan Free was the one that called the phrase Little Anthony. My name is Jerome Anthony Gordini. That did, the, the record company didn't come up with that. It was him. Because legend says that the record promoter went into WINS Radio in New York City where he was presiding 
and he was called the father of rock and roll because he phrased it, that made that phrase, because it, it meant something suggestive, but he made a phrase out of it. Um, he, uh, they brought the record to him, and he sat there, and in those days, this like he's for the, for the king, and they decided when they were going to play, when they wouldn't go play, so you didn't want them to be your enemy. And they, and he put it on, and he said, boom, my goodness, that girl sure can sing. And then the promoter said, uh, that's not a girl, uh, that's a guy. <laughs> he said, a, a, a guy? That kind of high voice? Wow, he must be awfully little. Uh, <laughs> See? Then he got on radio. He was a giant. And he found out my first name, my second name, Anthony, and he just decided to call me Little Anthony. The original recordings were just the Imperials. They cut me out of the herd. Just like they cut Donna Ross out the herd. Excuse <laughs> me. Um, Smokey Robinson and Fagulana and on and on and on and on. Awesome. Yeah, the social media were the uh, disc jockeys who pushed the record. That's how no, they, they were the guys. And then Payola, the problem with Payola, which they still do, that's another story. It's just done differently. But right. there was a national consensus at that time to get rid of rock and roll because it was bringing the, the races together, the news, pulling black folks together. And there were people who had... Their agenda was to keep them divided. There's a lot of that going on today. So it's just to keep them divided because that's how you you stay in power. That was the way it was in the in the record business. So they picked up. They they didn't like him because he was really integrating. They, they, we start getting people start integrating without thinking about it. By listening to music, they love the music. They go see the show. And they think that you know, they so happy and enjoying the music, they'd be grabbing somebody black and one dance, one dance, and that's what was happening. And the powers of be at that time didn't want that to happen in this country. So a little thing like what says normal is breathing. We do it every day. You scratch my back, I'll scratch your back back then. And somebody said, Listen, I need this record playing, man. I'll give you a hundred dollars. Just give me give me a little a, a few days of this kind of play. That's what it was. It was that simple. And then they they caught that. And they said, good stuff, whatever the law was at that. And so they created that thing called payola. It destroyed him, which is what they wanted to do. And it knocked down a lot of distractions. But what it did was it took the power out of the distractions hands. So they developed people called program directors, which you see today. Everything has to go called top 40 and all that kind of stuff. That was developed afterwards to replace the disjockey's power. They didn't want to put too much power in one person's hand. Don Cornelius Cornelius was one of the great jockeys in Chicago. He had enough sense to realize he went on and developed his show for television. Mm-hmm. We all know how great that was. Oh, yes, indeed. And it's a legacy. I know. I met him when I was 18 years old. So I'm, I'm in Chicago. We, we, we go, and we all laugh and talk. And, yeah. And next thing I know, I said, what? This dude has got a seat. What's it called? So what? So thing? <laughs> it's, it's the longest running dance show in the history, longer than the clock. Right. And Don was one of those powerful disc jockeys in Chicago that 
I guess you figured we get out of here because there'll be a lot of a lot of heat. And he mm-hmm. just came up with a concept, and then whatever rest of his, he dogged it, and that was it. But Don Cadiz mm-hmm. is one of the greatest uh, radio voices ever was. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What do you remember about Mitch Thomas? Not not a lot. I know of him, but I'm not intimately or even cordially or have an acquaintance, but I know of him, yeah. But I, I, I really can say that I don't have a... I'm sure about a lot of people, but that that's one of the people that I never really had. He preceded, he preceded Don Cornelius in having a show. He did? Yeah, I thought yeah, that. Yeah, in the late 50s. Yeah, yeah. In the late 50s. In fact, one of my, uh, my first, um, musical guests, guy musical guest on this show, uh, said that he, uh, always watched the Mitch Thomas show, and that was the late Lynn Barry. Oh, yeah. Swore, and he swore, oh, he oh. said, that got the people, the white kids would, would watch the Mitch Thomas show and try to emulate the dances on bandstands. Yes. That's what it was. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, he Great. loved the Mitch Thomas show. Yeah, he would talk about that. Yeah, he would talk about it. Yeah, they copied the scroll and everything off of off of Mitch Thomas's show. Yeah, and it was, we were the first black group that ever did a famous jockey in Baltimore, Maryland. What was his, uh, gosh, I can't remember that man's name. He was a staunch segregationist. But, you know, we had gotten so big that we crossed, they call it crossover. We not only was popular, but our, my own people, but we blew up with the white folks. Mm-hmm. So now what did they do? How do they want us to do it? They want us to see who are these people that sing like that on this guy. We want to see them. We were the first to integrate that show. Buddy something. Buddy. This came to my mind that quick. Buddy something. Buddy something show. Damn show. I know. It's huge. Yeah, I read about that. Yeah, about how he was, you know, great segregationists who didn't want to bring the races together. And you could not appear on a show. Uh No, I do it first. And you know that that play and movie, Hairspray? That was was taken from that. Wow. If if your audience want to know, I better listen. That's where that came from. I know because I was there. (laughs) <laughs> wow. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And we were the first to be on that show. Believe me, we didn't know all that, you know. But in retrospect, hindsight being 2020 and looking back, and I began to say, oh, my gosh, we were creating history, and we didn't even know we were part of it. And now when you look back at that, you know, the times that you started to have the hit hurt so bad and, and other things, how um, how do they treat a group like yours that all of a sudden explodes with hit after hit after hit for a good seven, eight years or more? We didn't want that because in 1958, when Mr. Lou Dollar, who was the public relations man, Gordon and Records decided that they didn't like the name that we originally had that we created, like the DuPont, but this was the, we were called the Chesters now. We, this is a different group. The one that caused me to stop my whole career with them, with clowns those guys. But it was called the Chester, they didn't like to call it Imperials. So you just looked out the window and you saw a car, and it was an Imperial Chrysler. And he said, let's call them Imperials. So from that point on, 
we started developing. So we were, I was, this was the funniest thing. I was in the middle of all that, in segregation. I was there. I was humiliated. Not now. I experienced it physically, emotionally, psychologically. I'm a kid out of New York. And there's always some sort of thing everywhere. But when I went down south, because my mother, my mother told me, and she comes to Savannah, Georgia, she said, boy, when you go down there, this is what you got to do. This is how you go. And I'm going, well, what? No, it's, it's different than New York City. Well, I don't know. I don't, all I've ever experienced in New York City, I go, went where I wanted to go when I wanted to go, most places. And I had to deal with all that. So coming to, I'm a little tough little kid out on the street. From 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 the gang situation, you know, I mean, you react, you just react. Oh, you gonna do that and say that to me? You know, you gonna disrespect me? Then I'm gonna go back. You can't do that down there at that time. Right. That was the first time I went to when we were on the tour, and there was greatest people in the world was on that tour: Bo Diddley, Laverne Baker. Uh, oh my goodness, I played with them all. Ruth Brown, all of them. And we were traveling everywhere, and we ended up in the South. And they tried to tell me, now, wait a minute, young man. you got to understand this. How you got to read just, adapt to just where you go, and we don't get us in trouble. And I remember when we went, we went, was in Washington, D.C., which, it was, you know, acceptable. It was okay. And then we ended up in Virginia, in Richmond, Virginia, which is right down the street from Washington, D.C. And we ended up that night, and I, and I noticed, I'm thinking we're going to go to a hotel. A regular hotel, like, I always wouldn't over my mother, but we took a regular hotel in New York. But we were, we were in this little place, dusty little place somewhere, and we said, well, what, I'm looking, I'm going, how come we ain't going there? That, they're going, Sheridan's going past us right now. <laughs> in this little place, and it had a little white, little light, and you had to put a quarter in to hear the radio. What? <laughs> yeah. And like the first thing I walked out, I ain't got, I went to the park, I, I saw, I don't know what I did, was a couple of, and I went to get some water, and, and, the, and people said, you can't drink that, boy. I said, why? It's water. That <laughs> 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 was the, that second time I heard that word, nigger. And it's it like, it's very crazy. I said, well, what's going on here? I had to see. I got a history lesson the hard way. But I thank God for the people that raised me, my aunts and all them. They fortified me with something that got me through that. My belief, my mom showed who Jesus was. She gave me a foundation of spiritually understanding. And that was my faith. I hung on because you can hate people after that kind of experience, young lady. I mean, I was beautiful. And they're not just me. I'm not personal. We all were. To the point where I got to Tennessee, in Knoxville, Tennessee, and I called my mother. And she said, where are you? I said, I'm at the airport, getting this van of airline. I'm going home. I'm coming home. She said, boy, you, boy, you don't. You, you, did, you have made a commitment. You stick by it. I told you that that's what you were going to experience. I said, mama, this is terrible. She said, no. That's what you experience. Now, all of that, I met some of the greatest people in the world during that period. And the young man I read, met, his, his name was Reverend Abernathy. And I met Miles the King. I met some of the greatest people you ever want. And those people in, 
just the words they said to me were so encouraging. I was able to endure that. Not only endure that, but I never came out bitter. And let me tell you something. A lot of us came out bitter. And I knew nobody is bitter any good in the touch. What I've learned is, no, I know who I am. Okay, what you say. I know who I am. So, would I change that experience? It's tough. No, I wouldn't. Because it was part of my character building in the proper way. I didn't come feeling, I'm, I'm, I'll get them or whatever. No, because these wonderful people came in my life. When I met, met Mr. Mr. Luther King, I met him in the, the old Atlanta airport. Because there was a young man I knew then by the name of Muhammad Ali, but he was known as Cassius Clay. I knew him back in 1964 when I met him. But he came to my the studio. He was a big fan. He came to the studio when I was called. He was, he was in the studio, in the booth, when I was singing Hurts for Bad. Do you know that? Oh, wow. Cassius Clay, wow. He was on the taxes then. And, like I said, Sam Cooke. Sam Cooke and I wrote a song down in the basement of Apollo because I knew him and, he, and, and the, the record guy says, hey, you know, little after she's singing this song, this gospel thing, because that's where my, cut my, that's my roots. I cut my, my like most black folk in the church. Hell named Jazz, don't like. And he said, so he said, man, could you put some words to that? We, he came, he said, man, meet me down under the Apollo. There's a rehearsal hall down there in the basement where we rehearsed. And we went down there with a piano. And he, he, he put the words, I'm all right. We wrote that song together. Oh, I'm all right. You can look that up. Oh, you say, they'll say, Sam Cook, Anthony Gordini. I can go on all day. Because people, when people perceive who you are, they only perceive what they get. You define, this one can define you, pick as you all want. But when I had a strong faith and strength, to not have anybody define who I, I am. Maybe that's what God set me in to do. He's just talking to you on this phone. And I turn around at 81 years old, so let me tell you, baby. Lady, I am so blessed. I'm so humble because I've seen it all. And I know some of the artists and I, that I will name nameless. Some of the greatest black performers in the world became so bitter. Some of them died. They were so angry. But that didn't develop them. That only destroyed them. And I remember when I was talking to Mr. King, and I said to him, in the airport, I said, I said, is there anything I could do? And I was just saying, he said, he looked at me with that beautiful, he had nice eyes. And he said, look, I tell you, what you do what you do, you keep doing what you do. And I'll keep doing what I'm doing, and we're going to work this thing out. Uh, so I took that. And that word made me feel, oh, man, I know who I am. Mm -hmm. It's that. I'm no victim. And if we think that every human being has a gift that God gives you, this divine God, he's real. See, a lot of people believe in God. Well, the devil believes in God. But most people don't believe him. And that's where the problem is. Because once you get in that state, you start seeing who you are, your purpose in life. Right now, I'm talking to you imputably. You may not ever hear. I'm looking at you like this. 
Maybe you will, maybe you won't. But I'm telling you what I have experienced, and it's the most wonderful trip that I've ever been on. And when the day comes when I leave the bonds of this earth to be with my Lord, I have done what I was supposed to do. You've been listening to Building a Limited Success with Sabrina Marie. Copyright February 17th, 2023.